This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, an ancient manuscript hidden away for centuries is discovered and helps to unlock a new way of appreciating and praying with the Gospels. We talk to our guest, Jenna Reese, about the prayer wheel, a tool for unlocking renewed faith and spiritual practice. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jenna Reese. She holds degrees in religion from Wellesley College, Princeton Theological Seminary, and Columbia University. She's a senior columnist for Religion News Service and speaks often to the media about issues pertaining to religion in America. She's the author, co-author, and editor of many books, including Flunking Sainthood, A Year of Breaking the Sabbath, Forgetting to Pray, and Still Loving My Neighbor, which was named one of the top ten religion books of the year by Publishers Weekly in 2011. We're speaking today about a new book called The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with a Rediscovered Spiritual Practice, which was co-written by Patton Dodd and David Van Bema. Jenna Reese, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. So we are going to be discussing an ancient manuscript which has been found and researched by you and your colleagues Patton Dodd and David Van Bema, and it is something that probably our listeners are not completely familiar with or may never have heard of. So maybe the first place to start is, when I say that you have written a book about the prayer wheel, what are we talking about? Well, it's a great question, and no one should feel bad that they haven't heard of the prayer wheel, because until 2015, basically nobody had heard of the prayer wheel for hundreds of years. So don't feel bad about that. The prayer wheel that we are talking about comes from a monastery in Lisbon, Germany, and it's a diagram that was found inside a book of Gospels that came up for sale in 2015. And this diagram really caught the attention of David Van Bema, one of my co-authors, when he went to an exhibit of some of these medieval artifacts, and he asked for more information, and it just kind of let him go. So he got me on board and also got Pat and Dodd on board, and the three of us have tried to reverse engineer this diagram to understand how it might be used as a spiritual practice today and also how it would have been used in its own time 900 years ago. And so David Van Bema saw this in an exhibit. It wouldn't let him go, and then he reached out to you, Jana Reese, and Pat and Dodd, Why did he turn to you? What is your background that would make you two the go-to for him? Well, that's a great question, because, you know, I can tell you the answer, but I'm not quite sure I believe it myself. So the official answer is that Patton and I were brought on board because David believed us to be devout people of prayer, you know, who could really help with understanding 
this as a spiritual practice. David describes himself as a secular Jew. He is one who has written about religion for many years with great respect and great facility, but he is not someone who prays himself. So he thought Patton and I could handle that part of this project. I say this with some skepticism because I'm not someone who thinks myself as some prayer warrior. I am not consistent with my own prayer practice, although the wheel has helped tremendously with that in the time that I have been using it. So it's actually been very good for me, too. And so when David Van Bema approached you, what were some of the first things that he said? Hey, I found a treasure. Hey, I found a mystery. Hey, I found something and I don't know what it is. What, what did he communicate to you? Well, he had just written an article about it, the first piece that he wrote about it, for Religion News Service, which is also a vehicle that I write for. So I looked it up while we were on the phone so I could read a little bit. And definitely the mystery aspect of it was first and foremost, because the wheel did not come with an instruction manual. It doesn't have written instructions that accompany the diagram saying, start here and end here. You can determine some of that, and I hope we'll talk about how the wheel is structured you can determine some of that based on the structure of the wheel and also based a little bit on what we know of medieval spirituality. But there is more that we don't know than that we do. So when David and I had that first conversation, it was very much about, here's this amazing artifact. No one has written about this, although we did find later there was one scholarly dissertation in German that we had translated But other than that, no one had written about this, and we thought it was just so fascinating. Well, let's take a moment and start to describe this so that our listeners get a sense of what it is that we're talking about. So when we say that it's a wheel, we don't mean that it's like something attached to a wagon. It's it's on a piece of paper, but, but from there... If you could, just briefly describe what it is that we would be seeing if we were sitting on a table with this manuscript in front of us. If you imagine you're looking at a dartboard, and the bullseye of this dartboard is God, that gives you a basic visual sense of what the wheel looks like. I would also say, before I forget, that anybody listening can download a free copy of the wheel from the book's website, which is prayerwheelbook.com. Dot com And up in the top right, I think it is, you can click on Download the Wheel, and that's for you to enjoy. You can use the wheel without the book. The book, I think, is I hope is very helpful, but it's not necessary to get started. So if you're looking at this dartboard and you think of how the rings of a dartboard come in and you have different concentric circles getting smaller as you get to the center, in this wheel, each one of those concentric circles or rings has a text in it. The the outermost is the Lord's Prayer divided into seven pieces. And then you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit from the book of Isaiah. You have seven themes from the life of Christ in the next part. And then seven beatitudes with their seven promises. So blessed are the blank because they will be blank. And all of those wedges, pieces of pie that dissect the wheel are heading into God so that on each of these seven paths, you've got one piece of the Lord's Prayer, you've got one 
gift of the Spirit, one scene from the life of Christ, and one beatitude. And the cool thing, the wonderful, mysterious thing, is how they are lined up, how they are juxtaposed theologically one with another. Well, what's interesting to me is that if you look around the outside, and and the prayer wheel that you have is a translation from the Latin, that's my understanding, but the the very outside seems to have an inscription that says, the order of the diagram written here teaches the return home. And you say the very center of the wheel is God. And so this would be, for those that have read or know a little bit about Thomas Aquinas, this seems to be sort of pointing to that notion of, you know, our whole orientation and the whole reason why we're here on earth is to prepare ourselves for what Thomas called the beatific vision, the notion that somehow we're to be eventually face-to-face with God. Is that part of the background of what we're seeing here? Yes, I believe so, although clearly you you know more about Thomas Aquinas than I do, and that's very helpful for me to hear. Definitely in spirituality that dates in this broad period that we call the medieval period or the Middle Ages, there's an emphasis on what was called ordo, or we would translate order, that everything is going to proceed according to God's design, according to God's direction. And the wheel is kind of masterminded with that in mind. So like you say, God is home. The invocation that is written around the perimeter of the wheel that says, that the order of the diagram, the ordo of the diagram written here, teaches the return home, we believe, is directing us to God. It's always every path, each one of the seven paths is bringing us closer to that center, and that's how it was manufactured, that's how it was created. And so when you were brought on board with this investigation by David Van Bema, did you have a chance to actually physically see the manuscript itself? Did you travel and visit the place where it was? Or did he simply describe it to you, send you a picture? What was your first encounter with this manuscript object? I have never seen it in person, and I would love to do that. It has been repurchased. This whole book of Gospels that has the diagram in it is now repurchased by the German government and is back at the monastery where it started. And that, in Lisbon, as I said before, uh, it is now a museum, and so it is available for public viewing, and it's a dream of mine to go there and to be able to see it in person. What we have are photographs of the Latin original version. We also have an English-language facsimile that is on the cover of the book, and that was created by the gallery that was trying to sell the Gospels book in order to help English-language readers understand what the texts were inside the wheel. And then, of course, we have uh, hired a designer, and the publisher hired a designer to create these more modern, streamlined versions that you can use for prayer, because it's not really totally intuitive when you're looking at the original wheel, even the facsimile in English, how the heck do you use this thing? So by making the lines more clear of each of the seven paths and by lining these things up more geometrically, we hope that we have visually made it a little bit clearer. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jana Reese. She's a senior columnist for Religion News Service, and we're talking about a new book that she's helped to co-author, along with Patton Dodd and David Van Bema, called The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with a Rediscovered Spiritual Practice. We'll be back in a moment.
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jana Reese. She's the co-author, along with Patton Dodd and David Van Bema, of the book The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with Rediscovered Spiritual Practice. Jana Reese is also a senior columnist for Religion News Service. Well, I'm thinking now of Phyllis Tickle, who helped to popularize religious publishing through her columns at Publishers Weekly and her work there. But she also got involved in helping to popularize the notion of the daily hours, which is largely a Catholic and Episcopalian practice of taking certain times of the day to retreat from your daily life and to spend a few moments in prayer. And she wrote several books that helped to popularize that. And so when I was reading through this book, The Prayer Wheel, Phyllis Tickle was very much in my mind. And so first of all, I want to ask you, do you see this being something that is complementary to something like a practice of the daily office, the sort of thing that Phyllis Tickle championed? Or is this of whole new cloth? Is this a different type of practice altogether from those daily hours? Well, first, let me say, did you notice in the dedication to the book, each one of us dedicated it to someone, and I dedicated the book to Phyllis? I did, and that's partly why I asked the question. Okay, I was, okay. well, I was going to be very impressed if you just kind of pulled that out of whole cloth, you know. So Phyllis, as you say, was this amazing resurrectionist, I think, of fixed-hour prayer. Catholics have never lost what fixed-hour prayer meant, and it has been a tradition that has been kept alive through the centuries. But for Protestants, Phyllis was instrumental in introducing this or reintroducing this, and it changed many, many lives. I would love to think that this spiritual practice would have a similar effect, or something like the labyrinth, you know, which has become a, it's a medieval practice as well, and one that has become extremely important to a lot of people when, in fact, again, it was not used, it was not popular for many centuries between the Middle Ages and the 1990s, really. So we would be delighted if this is a spiritual practice that has some resonance. I think that the attraction for me, in part, was this sense of recovery, this sense of there are ancient paths that have something to teach us. This wheel is not only physically, kind of aesthetically beautiful, but it is encapsulating to me the basic essence of the Christian faith, which is a whole heck of a lot to do in one diagram. But as I said, you know, when you have the Lord's Prayer, you have the seven main themes from the life of Christ, you have the Beatitudes, you know, this is a fantastic introduction and a visual one to what Christian belief is all about. And it's possible to go through the wheel in 20 minutes. It's also possible to spend an entire lifetime investigating 
what those mysteries mean. And that way, I think it is similar to something like Sixth Hour Prayer. You know, the Psalter has 150 psalms, and monks traditionally were expected to memorize the entire Psalter, and that was when their education really began. That's an amazing thought to me. Well, and you just mentioned in your answer, you mentioned the labyrinth. There's also another medieval practice, the notion of Lexio Divina. You know, so we get from the Middle Ages these various ways of trying to incorporate, and I'm using that word very advisedly because incorporate literally means to bring into the body. So we're trying to incorporate our spirituality into our breathing, into our reading, into our walking, even with the labyrinth. And so in what ways does this prayer wheel help us to embody our spirituality? What would a person be doing while they're practicing with this prayer wheel? Well, it's entirely up to the individual, but one thing that when we were consulting with a medieval historian, he pointed out to us that there are finger smudges on the original wheel. This is very interesting because it seems that in its time, at least some people used it as almost like a finger labyrinth, that they were tracing with their fingers as they worked through the various texts in the wheel. And that resonates with me a lot, because for me, since the beginning, I've been doing that too. You know, I'm a more physical, kind of tactile person. I think Patton and David have had a different approach. But for me, touching the wheel has something very important. I think we have lost a bit of that sense of an embodied spirituality, and that's helpful to get back especially right now. Well, one of the things that fascinates me, particularly when we look at this from the top down, and it looks in some ways like a labyrinth, I was struck by the fact that the labyrinth was used in medieval times as a stopgap. So it was a very pious practice to go on a pilgrimage to a holy site, but not everyone had the physical stamina to be able to make a pilgrimage. Not everyone could go on the Camino, for example. And so labyrinths became a way partly of doing the equivalent sort of journey in a metaphorical sense. And so I'm very struck by the ways in which the prayer wheel could be utilized as a kind of intellectual labyrinth and the, the outside saying, you know, this is, this is the way to lead you home. And the notion somehow of, in the same way that you could use a metaphor of a physical journey of faith in walking the labyrinth, you can take a metaphor of an intellectual journey of faith, an intellectual ascent, if you will, to all of the ways that God touches our life through the scriptures and through the promises of the Beatitudes and all of that. So I, I see a strong resonance there. But when I see that, I want to ask you, since you've done a lot more work on this, am I on the right track? I think that's beautiful. Absolutely, you're on the right track. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and so with that, then, when you talk about the smudges around, what I love about that image is that we get the sense that this was not just something that was created and then shut up in a book. The object that we're talking about was utilized. It was used, wasn't it? Well, yes and no. I want to qualify this by saying at least some people used it this way. But I have not encountered what I would consider to be any credible historical evidence that this was a prayer practice of the people. You know, this book of the Gospels and also the other prayer wheels that we know about were in monasteries and libraries. They were preserved. 
Sometimes we believe they were used as mnemonic devices in order to introduce the basic texts of Christianity in a way that would visually help people to remember them. You know, medieval scholarship was very filled with diagrams of all kinds, some of which are very funky and beautiful, from trees to ladders to circles like we have here, zodiacs ways of presenting information so that in this culture where many people couldn't read, they would be able to visually recall where things were located in the diagram later. Does that make sense? It does. Well, and so one theory is that some of the novices who would come, it was a convent actually at one time, and it became a monastery, that some of the novices who would come here were illiterate. You know, we have this idea of the religious, having been literate in that culture, and some were, but some were not. And in that case, this would have been a really great way to visually teach them some of the core things that they would need to know about this faith. Again, a lot of this is conjecture. A lot of this is speculation. I wish that there had been more information left behind about exactly how these diagrams were used. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the structure of the diagram and kind of go, if you will, circle by circle. The outer ring we've talked about has this promise that if we practice this, it will lead us to our home, our home being the center of the circle, that being God. And then if we go into the first circle within, you mentioned that this was the what the Catholics call the Our Father, what Protestants call the, the Lord's Prayer. But to say that, how is it divided up around the circle? What What would a person encounter when they were looking at this diagram? So the very first piece is holy is your name or hallowed be thy name. And then moving to the left, it's your kingdom come. In wedge number three, it's thy will be done. And then daily bread. And then forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Kicks off the sixth path. And then finally deliver us from evil is the seventh path. Okay, and so that's literally taking chunks from the language of the Lord's Prayer, and is it divided up in any sort of order around the circle in a way that relates to any other part of the circle, or is it simply just, this is the first thing and you're just meant to go around that outer band? Well, we believe actually that you can pray it in a couple of different ways. One would simply be to go around the way I just did, as you would when you were reciting the Lord's Prayer with Our Father. But The way that the wheel is structured intuitively means that, for example, you would be starting up at the top with holy is your name, and then instead of continuing with the Lord's Prayer, you would go one ring deeper into the wheel, one ring closer to God, to the gift of the Holy Spirit that's associated with that path. So that's the kicker, is how are these things connected to each other, not within the ring itself, but between the first ring, the second ring, the third, and God. When you talked about this in the book, the image that came to mind, and it was my Catholic mind, was a rosary, because a rosary is a similar sort of journey, but you take that journey in a number of ways, and there are ways that you can simply pray the rote prayer. There are also ways that you can pray with intentionality when you are manipulating a rosary. There are also three different styles of praying the rosary that call you to meditate on different aspects of the life of Christ and the and the work and mystery of Christ. And so I'm wondering, could this in some way be similar to the way that a Catholic would approach a rosary, those sort of multiple entrance points and multiple meditative points? 
I love the idea of multiple entrance points because I think that's very apt. The rosary is a later spiritual practice. This evolves a little earlier, but I like the idea that they are trying to accomplish similar goals. In our book, we've structured the prayer practice of the book initially so that you're going through 49 days. It's a seven-week spiritual practice based on one path per week for seven weeks. But in parts two and three of the book, we suggest other possible ways to pray. And so there are ways in which the wheel could be used in this more systematic method, or you could be more spontaneous. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jana Reese, and we're talking about a new book called The Prayer Wheel. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jana Reese. She's the co-author, along with Patton Dodd and David Van Bema, of the book The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with Rediscovered Spiritual Practice. Jana Reese is also a senior columnist for Religion News Service. Well, I'm thinking now of Phyllis Tickle, who helped to popularize religious publishing through her columns at Publishers Weekly and her work there. But she also got involved in helping to popularize the notion of the daily hours, which is largely a Catholic and Episcopalian practice of taking certain times of the day to retreat from your daily life and to spend a few moments in prayer. And she wrote several books that helped to popularize that. And so when I was reading through this book, The Prayer Wheel, Phyllis Tickle was very much in my mind. And so first of all, I want to ask you, do you see this being something that is complementary to something like a practice of the daily office, the sort of thing that Phyllis Tickle championed, or is this of whole new cloth? Is this a different type of practice altogether from those daily hours? Well, first, let me say, did you notice in the dedication to the book, each one of us dedicated it to someone, and I dedicated the book to Phyllis? I did, and that's partly why I asked the question. Okay, I was, okay. well, I was going to be very impressed if you just kind of pulled that out of whole cloth, you know. So Phyllis, as you say, was this amazing resurrectionist, I think, of fixed-hour prayer. Catholics have never lost what fixed-hour prayer meant, and it has been a tradition that has been kept alive through the centuries. But for Protestants, Phyllis was instrumental in introducing this or reintroducing this, and it changed many, many lives. I would love to think that this spiritual practice would have a similar effect, or something like the labyrinth, you know, which has become a—it's a medieval practice as well, and one that has become extremely important to a lot of people when, in fact, again, it was not 
used, it was not popular for many centuries between the Middle Ages and the 1990s, really. So we would be delighted if this is a spiritual practice that has some resonance. I think that the attraction for me, in part, was this sense of recovery, this sense of there are ancient paths that have something to teach us. This wheel is not only physically, kind of aesthetically beautiful, but it is encapsulating to me the basic essence of the Christian faith, which is a whole heck of a lot to do in one diagram. But as I said, you know, when you have the Lord's Prayer, you have the seven main themes from the life of Christ, you have the Beatitudes, you know, this is a fantastic introduction and a visual one to what Christian belief is all about. And it's possible to go through the wheel in 20 minutes. It's also possible to spend an entire lifetime investigating what those mysteries mean. And that way, I think it is similar to something like the Dower Prayer. You know, the Psalter has 150 psalms, and monks traditionally were expected to memorize the entire Psalter. And that was when their education really began. That's an amazing thought to me. Well, and you just mentioned in your answer, you mentioned the labyrinth. There's also another medieval practice, the notion of Lexio Divina. You know, so we get from the Middle Ages these various ways of trying to incorporate, and I'm using that word very advisedly because incorporate literally means to bring into the body. So we're trying to incorporate our spirituality into our breathing, into our reading, into our walking, even with the labyrinth. And so in what ways does this prayer wheel help us to embody our spirituality? What would a person be doing while they're practicing with this prayer wheel? Well, it's entirely up to the individual, but one thing that when we were consulting with a medieval historian, he pointed out to us that there are finger smudges on the original wheel. This is very interesting because it seems that in its time, at least some people used it as almost like a finger labyrinth, that they were tracing with their fingers as they worked through the various texts in the wheel. And that resonates with me a lot because for me, since the beginning, I've been doing that too. You know, I'm a more physical kind of tactile person. I think Patton and David have had a different approach. But for me, touching the wheel has something very important. I think we have lost a bit of that sense of an embodied spirituality, and that's helpful to get back, especially right now. Well, one of the things that fascinates me, particularly when we look at this from the top down, and it looks in some ways like a labyrinth, I was struck by the fact that the labyrinth was used in medieval times as a stopgap. So it was a very pious practice to go on a pilgrimage to a holy site, but not everyone had the physical stamina to be able to make a pilgrimage. Not everyone could go on the Camino, for example. And so labyrinths became a way partly of doing the equivalent sort of journey in a metaphorical sense. And so I'm very struck by the ways in which the prayer wheel could be utilized as a kind of intellectual labyrinth and the the outside saying, you know, this is this is the way to lead you home. And the notion somehow of, in the same way that you could use a metaphor of a physical journey of faith in walking the labyrinth, you can take a metaphor of an intellectual journey of faith 
an intellectual assent, if you will, to all of the ways that God touches our life through the scriptures and through the promises of the Beatitudes and all of that. So I, I see a strong resonance there. But when I see that, I want to ask you, since you've done a lot more work on this, am I on the right track? I think that's beautiful. Absolutely, you're on the right track. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and so with that, then, when you talk about the smudges around, what I love about that image is that we get the sense that this was not just something that was created and then shut up in a book. The object that we're talking about was utilized. It was used, wasn't it? Well, yes and no. I want to qualify this by saying at least some people used it this way. But I have not encountered what I would consider to be any credible historical evidence that this was a prayer practice of the people. You know, this book of the Gospels and also the other prayer wheels that we know about were in monasteries and libraries. They were preserved. Sometimes we believe they were used as mnemonic devices in order to introduce the basic texts of Christianity in a way that would visually help people to remember them. You know, medieval scholarship was very filled with diagrams of all kinds, some of which are very funky and beautiful from trees to ladders to circles like we have here, zodiacs, ways of presenting information so that in this culture where many people couldn't read, they would be able to visually recall where things were located in the diagram later. Does that make sense? It does. Well, and so one theory is that some of the novices who would come, it was a convent actually at one time, and it became a monastery, that some of the novices who would come here were illiterate. You know, we have this idea of the religious having been literate in that culture, and some were, but some were not. And in that case, this would have been a really great way to visually teach them some of the core things that they would need to know about this faith. Again, a lot of this is conjecture. A lot of this is speculation. I wish that there had been more information left behind about exactly how these diagrams were used. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the structure of the diagram and kind of go, if you will, circle by circle. The outer ring we've talked about has this promise that if we practice this, it will lead us to our home, our home being the center of the circle, that being God. And then if we go into the first circle within, you mentioned that this was the what the Catholics call the Our Father, what Protestants call the, the Lord's Prayer. But to say that, how is it divided up around the circle? What what would a person encounter when they were looking at this diagram? So the very first piece is, holy is your name, or hallowed be thy name. And then moving to the left, it's your kingdom come. In wedge number three, it's thy will be done. And then daily bread. And then forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation kicks off the sixth path, and then finally deliver us from evil is the seventh path. Okay, and so that's literally taking chunks from the language of the Lord's Prayer, and is it divided up in any sort of order around the circle in a way that relates to any other part of the circle, or is it simply just this is the first thing and you're just meant to go around that outer band? Well, we believe actually that you can pray it in a couple of different ways. One would simply be to go around the way I just did, as you would when you were reciting the Lord's Prayer with Our Father. But the way that the wheel is structured intuitively means that, for example, you would be starting up at the top with Holy is Your Name, 
And then instead of continuing with the Lord's Prayer, you would go one ring deeper into the wheel, one ring closer to God, to the gift of the Holy Spirit that's associated with that path. So that's the kicker, is how are these things connected to each other, not within the ring itself, but between the first ring, the second ring, the third, and God. When you talked about this in the book, the image that came to mind, and it was my Catholic mind, was a rosary, because a rosary is a similar sort of journey, but you take that journey in a number of ways, and there are ways that you can simply pray the rote prayer. There are also ways that you can pray with intentionality when you are manipulating a rosary. There are also three different styles of praying the rosary that call you to meditate on different aspects of the life of Christ and the and the work and mystery of Christ. And so I'm wondering, could this in some way be similar to the way that a Catholic would approach a rosary, those sort of multiple entrance points and multiple meditative points? I love the idea of multiple entrance points because I think that's very apt. The rosary is a later spiritual practice. This evolves a little earlier, but... I like the idea that they are trying to accomplish similar goals. In our book, we've structured the prayer practice of the book initially so that you're going through 49 days. It's a seven-week spiritual practice based on one path per week for seven weeks. But in parts two and three of the book, we suggest other possible ways to pray. And so there are ways in which the wheel could be used in this more systematic method, or you could be more spontaneous. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jana Reese, and we're talking about a new book called The Prayer Wheel. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Jana Reese about the new book, The Prayer Wheel, a daily guide to renewing your faith with a rediscovered spiritual practice. She co-authored the book with Patton Dodd and David Van Bema. Well, at one point in the introductory notes of the book, you make a statement that I want to dig into. You make the passing statement that this is not the Bible code. And I want to make sure that we unpack that, because some listeners may be hearing this and thinking, oh, well, I've been reading the Bible all wrong, I've been praying all wrong, and this is the secret key to unlock all of that. But that's not what you're saying, is it? No. I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the Bible Cody approach to the wheel than I think David was. That was his contribution. Um, that was part of his introduction that he wrote, and Patton and I both edited. But if, you know, if I were to say, I would say that there are mysterious elements to the wheel. There are moments of just absolutely zingy spirituality that I don't understand. And whether that that's a Bible Cody thing, I think what David is objecting to, and in this case I totally agree, is that there is no backmasking here. You know, there is no secret message that is written in this diagram to help people have an almost Gnostic sense that they know how to get to God. The wheel is mysterious, but it's also transparent. I don't think there's anything hidden in here 
that is going to show the one true way to find Jesus Christ. Well, if you were to say who your ideal audience for this book would be, who would you hope would be a reader of this book? You know, in my other research that's completely not related to the wheel, I'm looking at millennials, and at millennials particularly who are leaving organized religion, and many of whom are are still seeking spiritually. And I hope that this is a book that can speak to people who are mistrustful of institutions, but are still interested in what the faith has to teach and in getting closer to God, because this is a spiritual practice that you can do at home. This is a spiritual practice that has ties to uh, hundreds of years of Christian faith and practice. So it is time-tested and true, but it's also something that doesn't come with a lot of institutional expectations. So I think right now my heart is particularly sensitive to people who've been burned by organized religion and would like to find something that is tied to history, but is not necessarily coming with all that baggage. And do you think part of the reason for that is because this has been sort of hidden for a number of centuries, and it hasn't had the chance to collect the kind of institutional trappings of those other practices? Or is there something else about this particular this particular manuscript, The Prayer Wheel, that makes it special in that regard? You know, that's a great question. I would need, I think, more time to reflect on that. I hate the thought of the prayer wheel ever becoming, you know, bogged down with institutional baggage or commercialized or all these things that tend to happen. But I do like the thought of it being accessible to everyone. And I think the key in having it be so accessible is that these are texts from the Bible. There's nothing exotic necessarily about the texts themselves. What is interesting and fresh is the way they are put together. Well, and we've been talking about this with largely Christian idioms and Christian narrative and as a Christian practice, but you mentioned that David Van Bema is a, is a non-practicing Jewish person. Is this something that is only for Christians, or is this something that could be a benefit to people of other faiths, or have you had a chance to examine that yet? You know, I would say it's definitely something that could be of benefit to people of other faiths, but it is also distinctly Christian. These are scenes from the life of Christ, the Beatitudes that are words from the mouth of Jesus Christ. You can't apologize for that. I'm just going to leave it there. I, th- I think a lot of different people could benefit from this, but it is based in the Christian tradition. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that this manuscript was found bundled up with a very beautiful and ornate collection of the Gospels. And so in the introductory notes, you mentioned that you imagined that this book of the Gospels was one that was used, for example, the swearing of oaths and other sorts of formal activities. And so it it's here existing, you know, with this very formalized version of the Bible or very for- formalized version of the Gospels, but it's this other thing, isn't it? It's, it's this non-institutional other thing. I agree. It's both. And it's interesting, we found out about the idea that this book of Gospels was used for ceremonial occasions from the art dealer who had studied these before. And so the idea was that if you had some kind of special annual processional at the convent or the monastery, you would trot out the book and you would carry it down the aisle to the front of the church where everyone could see it. So it has this public function, but it also, and we can 
look, see this from the, the finger smudges. It also has this kind of private instructional function within the monastery itself, that people are actually using this diagram and trying to grow closer to God. Well, you began to allude to this earlier in the conversation, but I'd like to return to it. How has working on, researching, studying, and writing about this prayer wheel affected your own spiritual practices? To me, this is a call to return home, and it is that for me as well as for every person who picks up the prayer wheel and sees the invocation that's written around the perimeter that it teaches the return home. What the prayer wheel has done is introduce a whole different context for some of those words. For example, in the fourth path, the one that begins with daily bread, that is also paired up with spiritual gift of fortitude or strength. This is the path that I find myself praying most often for other people. So when I'm doing intercessory prayer for people who are hurting or sick or afraid, this is the path that I tend to turn to, that I am praying that they will have daily bread. And understanding that there is nothing that we can experience in terms of pain and suffering in this world, however terrible it can be at times, that Christ has not sanctified. And I'm calling upon that gift of the Holy Spirit for the person I'm praying for, so that fortitude, strength, can define them as they are descending into their own personal hell, whatever that is. And it closes this path with, Blessed are those who hunger for justice, for they will be filled. So I'm closing it with an idea that this loved one will be filled. I love that image. Beginning in a place of requesting daily bread, and we're ending with being filled. Well, Jenna Reese, I am so happy to get a chance to talk to you. I loved this book when I got a chance to read through it. I learned so much from it, and I'm amazed of all the work that you folks have done to put together your explanations and to help people get access to this lost and now found guide to prayer. And so just I want to say thank you for taking the time to speak to me and to our listeners today. Um, Thank you. And if any of your listeners use the wheel and would like to communicate with us, absolutely please do so either through the Facebook group or through our website. We've been speaking today with Jana Reese about a new book called The Prayer Wheel, a daily guide to renewing your faith with a rediscovered spiritual practice. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.